How can we make the world better? By making ourselves better. The Dr. Joe Show explores how you can make positive personal change by using his groundbreaking and highly effective I Am approach to understand who we are and why we do what we do. Your small changes can have big effects. Join us now for the Dr. Joe Show with Mark Stiles of Stiles Law and your host, Dr. Joe Schrand. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Dr. Joe Show. Yeah, that's us here on WATD 95.9 FM. Here we are talking talking about stuff, Dr. Joe. I tell you, Mark, it is. Is that our tagline? Yes, this is it. Talking about stuff. It's who we are. And why we do what we do. And we are going to talk about what we do today. And you know, and, and what we don't do and what we should be doing. Correct. Because tonight, we are talking about women in science. 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 That song? Yeah, it's a great, you remember that song? Blinded and Me With Science. It blinded me with science. Science. Jeez. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> so we, we better not go we too fun? far on that field. But we, we're going to have, we have a wonderful... In studio guest, who I will be introducing in a moment. This woman is a tremendous guest, uh, amazing scientist. She has been doing science, well, I I don't want to say for how long, but it is amazing. And we're going to have a special call in guest from Chicago. Chicago. Who is also a young scientist who is combining science and theater and comedy. You got got something? Listen, Listen to this. Observation and experiment. Homo sapiens. Homo sapiens. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to talk all about that. And and, and that is going to be science with Sophie, who I. Really cool. Is really cool. And is Sophie on the air yet? (laughs) (laughs) Sophie Schrand, are you there from Chicago? Sophie Schrand is here. Calling in from Chicago. Is that you? Can you hear me? Now Hello. we can. Is this Science Great. with Sophie? The Science with Sophie, Sophie? It sure is. The wow. very same. Wow. This very same Science with Sophie. And Sophie, <laughs> while you are there in Chicago, let me, with the greatest honor, introduce our in studio guest, Professor Shirley Taylor, who is here who actually, we are so fortunate, has moved to Marshfield. That's right. Hi, Dr. Joe. Hello, Professor. And, and give, give Sophie a shout-out there, too. Hey, Sophie, I love your show. Oh, thank you, Shirley. I'm a big fan of yours as well. Ah, we're a mutually admirational society here. It's great. <laughs> we, we are just beaming. And, and if folks know me, it means they would know that I'm about to say that means our oxytocin is sky high, not OxyContin. Uh-huh. Oxytocin. So let, let me start with this. If it's okay, um, Sophie, seeing as though in Chicago, could, could you just talk a little bit first about what you're doing in terms of science with Sophie and how you're trying to really inspire young women to go into science? Sure. Well, Science with Sophie is my science comedy show for, I like to say, girls and everyone, because we all have a part to play in leveling the playing field for girls and women in STEM, STEM being science, technology, engineering, and math. And if you add an A in there for the arts, which is another big part of what I do, then you have STEAM, which is also very important. Um, So this really began for me uh, about five years ago. I have a neuroscience degree and a theater degree, and I've always loved the way that both fields look at the human condition and think about why we do what we do, which uh, relates a lot to this show. And uh, I 
started thinking about this a few years ago as a young professional going into science and science communication, that there were a lot of really great science role models that I had growing up, but the only female role model I had on TV for science was Ms. Frizzle from the Magic School Bus. And she is awesome, but she is a cartoon. She's not a real person. And I want to come so back that, to that, Sophie. W- w- please, yeah. Mark, would you make a note of that? Come back to the Miss Frizzle thing. Miss Frizzle. Thank you. Go ahead, Soph. Yeah. I call it the Miss Frizzle problem. Um, so that really started this whole thing for me. And I have I went to Chicago to work at the Museum of Science and Industry here, which is the largest science center in the Western Hemisphere. And a quick, quick plug for MSI if you're ever in Chicago. It's a wonderful museum. It's an amazing and museum. And I was performing and studying at the Second City as well, which is a big comedy theater out here, and uh, decided that this it was time to put them together and, and be the change that I want to see in the world. Sophie, so the where, show, where can people find your show right now? Yeah, the show lives on YouTube. Yep. Um, last year, a little bit about how it happened. Last year, after putting my writing team together, which is comprised of scientists, comedians, educators, each writer is at least two of those three things, um, and they're all women, which is also very cool. And we crowdfunded last year, meaning we uh, went through a platform online that um, basically asks everybody in the world if you like this idea and if you can support it so that it can happen. And we were going to raise for a pilot, and we ended up raising enough that we could make a first season. So we just released the first season on YouTube. It exists. Um, sciencewithsophie.com will get you there as well as YouTube slash science with Sophie. And that's Sophie with P H I E, not F, right? Exactly. Sophie. Yes. So, so, <laughs> Sophie, let, let me say this. Um, the, the part that for me is not only incredible, but also sort of troubling is that the only real role model was Miss Frizzle. Where I am sitting in a room right here mm-hmm. with a woman who should have been a role model because Mm -hmm. of the work that she's doing, uh, but nobody knew. So I I just want to turn it over right now to you, Professor Taylor. Can you tell folks a little bit about what you were doing? So the work that I did as a a professor at a couple of different universities, first in California and then in Virginia, had to do with epigenetics. Epigenetics. So genetics, we know, is what makes us different from each other and what makes a dog different from us, just for example. Um, our genes within each of our body, within each of us, in every single cell in our body, the genes are the same. Yet within our bodies, we have muscle, we have hair, we have mm. blood, and each of those different kinds of cells has a particular job to do, and it's epigenetics that makes each one of them different from the other. So a a blood cell has to make hemoglobin to carry oxygen to your muscles, which don't make hemoglobin, but they have to be able to contract in response to, I don't know, putting your hand on a hot plate, for example. So because of those differences between one cell and another, um, our bodies can function the way we need them to. And epigenetics does that. I got to tell you, that for me, I'm getting a chill. That is the coolest thing. What an incredible. Me too. <laughs> it's an incredible explanation. So how, how did this field of epigenetics that most people really don't know but should know because it is what makes you you, how did this start, Professor? Actually, it started with a simple experiment. We were testing a drug that was an anti-cancer drug 
in tissue culture. And what we were looking for was, ask, well, we were asking a question, does this drug itself cause cancer? So, so wait, let me, let me explain. So tissue culture is not a bunch of Kleenex that are getting, right. like, <laughs> listening to Shakespeare, right? So right. what is a tissue culture? We were growing cells from an embryonic mouse. From an embryonic mouse? Right. So not even a born mouse. Yeah, so they were taken from an embryonic mouse. Wow. They were grown in culture. Um, actually developed by a scientist called Charles Heidelberger and one of the, the postdocs in his lab, who was also female and didn't get credit for it. <laughs> um, nonetheless, this, this was a culture system that was very sensitive to the transforming ability of chemicals, making them become cancerous. Hmm. And so we were asking this question of a particular anti-cancer drug, and what we found was that the cells changed not only into cancer, but they changed into muscle and into fat. Whoa. They were changing completely in what they sh from what they should have been. And when we dug down deeper, we found that that was because this drug was inhibiting a particularly important process, the basis of epigenetics. So that was the first clue that there was a connection huh. between this process of epigenetics and the control of which genes are being expressed or allowed to be expressed in any given cell. That is mind-blowing. It really is. Uh, it really is, you know. But I'd, I'd like to ask the doctor how you found your way into that field and what types of folks did you look up to in the field of science that had you go against the grain, which I think we're going to talk about a little bit, right, as mm -hmm. to why a lot of women aren't going into high-end fields of science, right? Yes, we are going to talk about that. So, Professor? So I had, um, growing up, I had a lot of support from home. My parents always believed that we could be anything we wanted to be. And although they didn't have a clear idea of what it meant to be a scientist, um, they nonetheless encouraged me to pursue my curiosity and started in high school when I did a science project. And the person who mentored me through that really was also a curious curious young man. Um, and, and that helped me decide not to become a physician, which is where I was kind of headed, but rather to become a scientist, asking questions about things that we didn't understand, trying to figure out how to make things work. But I had role models too in the scientific world, but they were mostly here in America. I grew up in South Africa, hmm. where it was even more difficult to break in. Yeah. Um, but I had American role models in science, who were women. Women, okay. Who inspired me to continue, but very few, very few. So Sophie, any of that sound familiar to you? It does. It does. And not only for me, but for a lot of girls and women who I talk to as well, who have either pursued a science career or not, that really what can make or break that decision is the early influences, is somebody who is that support, whether it is a support of the sciences specifically, or as Dr. Shirley T Taylor said, um, the support of whatever it is that you'd like to do, right? Knowing that you have somebody who believes in you and your capability can really make all the difference. Yeah. And, you know, as a child psychiatrist, one of the things that I try to help parents with is to say it's much more interesting to be amazed at who your children are than disappointed in who they aren't. You know? So true. You know, because yeah. so, so many parents, they have the best of intention, but they have this idea of what a kid should be like, mm -hmm. 
And sometimes that really stifles things as opposed to going, whoa, who is this kid? This kid is so cool. Right. You know? <laughs> right? Yeah. I would love to endorse science with Sophie right now. Please. I've got uh, – I had the opportunity, Sophie, to see your your first Kickstarter because I've known your dad for a little while now and followed it up. And I have a 10-year-old boy who really, really enjoys your show. And I really hope that it hits big and gets out there to the international community because it's awesome. And you're awesome, Thanks. by the way. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. I'm so glad to hear that. And if I can just go on a tangent for a second, I'm I'm so glad to hear that, not just because, um, you know, I'm glad people like the show, um, but because it's your son as right. well. And one of the things we can talk about uh, as we go today is that it's, it's why I say it's for girls and everyone, right? It's not a, an us versus them. Um, it's not a competition. It's, it's, I like to say, an all play, right? Right. And and that was a shrange, and, and it wasn't really a tangent at all. It was perfect. <laughs> so, Do you think we need to disclose to your listeners that you're my dad? Yeah, it's true. <laughs> we I, about that. <laughs> I know, it's true. Full disclosure. But I could not be a prouder dad. Uh, uh, Sophie and, and all of my kids, I have four amazing kids. And you know, the force behind those kids is their amazing mom, right. Carol. I hope you're listening, Carol. Because it, it, none of this would happen without you. Who obviously supported them to do whatever they wanted because there was no question as to whether Sophie was going to get involved in science, right? Was there ever a thought in your mind, Sophie, that somebody was going to tell you, don't go down that field because that's for men? Right, right. My my parents used to somewhat jokingly say to me, you can be anything you want as long as it's a doctor. Uh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep, that, that was the joke, and uh, and I, it was. It was meant to just be funny and silly, but it's true. So look, we we, we have it's true. It, the point of it is that it was supportive, right? It was it was yeah. literally the idea that you could do any of this. Yeah. Right. So well, here here is is a question. Doctor Shirley and I had a chance to talk off air a little bit before the show, and you know I I love this epigenetic stuff. I actually put a little chapter in every one of my books on epigenetics i think it is so important and it is such an uh, just the the pivotal and central part i think of so much of what we do and people need to know about it so for me this sounds like a nobel prize winning discovery yeah. so so dr shirley what what happened well i think that epigenetics ultimately will win the nobel prize um, and I think there are a number of very, very prominent scientists who will do that, my own advisor included. And I wish, wish him well and wish all of them well. For me, as a perhaps a pioneer in epigenetics, the road that I took was, um, was perhaps a little more fraught with, with uh, stones in the road because it was not easy as a woman to break into the academic field knowing that I wanted to have kids. Hmm. That's always the big question, right? And there's this glass ceiling in academics in every field where women are not encouraged as they should be to achieve the highest ranks. So if we look at the number of people going in to university to get biology degrees, women outnumber men, but the number of women as full professors in a university system is appallingly low 
in comparison to their male counterparts. So that every, sounds so arcane, though. Come on, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's, what what year is it? Right, right. It's it's been like this forever, and it is still like this because there are there are are obstacles put in your way that make it much more difficult for women to f- really achieve what they want. Not all women, certainly. But from the time that we're born, we're given subliminal messages that tell us as women that we're not quite as good as our male counterparts. And it comes mm-hmm. from everywhere. It comes maybe from our parents, maybe from our siblings, certainly from the media. Mm-hmm. It comes from everywhere. And it goes on all through our lives so that by, by the time we're in high school and making career choices for ourselves, it's been drummed into us that we maybe can't go out for STEM careers. We can't go out for technology. We should be doing something else. I don't know, maybe being a, a stewardess on an airline, a nurse. As, yes, you have to love and be good at science to be a nurse, but those are much more service-oriented professions. Yeah. They're not the true pinnacle that women can achieve if they were given equal cho- equal opportunities. And I'm going to say when, because we have to move away from if. It has to be a when Absolutely. you're given equal when. opportunities. Yeah, I mean, why be the stewardess when, when you could be inventing and creating the, the airplane? Absolutely. Right. Now, when is a great question. When do those messages start to be transferred into your head that maybe... I'm not good at math, even though I got a hundred on that test. Maybe, maybe, uh, you know, maybe I don't like science, even though I love digging in the dirt and playing with the bugs with the other neighborhood kids. Mm-hmm. I think it's it starts very, very early on. And for me, okay, so I've, I'm just retired. So I have already finished my career. When I started this, it was a pretty long time ago. Um, I'm hoping that that's a a much lower probability happening now. I have a a granddaughter who is just starting college and she is bound and determined to to go into science. My own daughter just graduated with a PhD in um, developmental biology. I'm so proud of her too. Congratulations. So I think that the younger people coming along perhaps don't have as much of that ingrained messaging that I had as a young child but I still think it's there, and I think we cannot let up for a moment, being vigilant and trying to iron it out at every level. Are the numbers still down? So when your daughter was graduating with her PhD, was it a a huge uh, differential between male and female? No, I think that the number of people coming out with PhD degrees is probably much more even now, but it's what you get beyond this. Okay. Once you go into your professional career, after you've finished all of your education, that you start to see the obstacles in your way, especially when you take make choices about family versus career, and that always plays against a woman. But more so in the field of science? I am not sure if it's only yeah. in the field of science, but I feel that it is. It's interesting. I think it's in yeah. every field. I think I agree uh, with you, Sophie. Yeah, yeah. But it seems like there's—it seems like there's something more about science because, as as Dr. Joe had suggested this be our topic last week, I I did my own informal investigations because it was eye-opening to me. I had never really, you know, you walk the earth and you think you're observing what's going on, but yet I'm not in the science field, so I would have no idea. But 
I, I spoke to a number of people about this and they said, oh yeah, you know, when I was young, they told me that girls weren't good at math. And I was shocked at that, that just because I'm a male, no one told me I couldn't be good at math. Right, right. Mm -hmm. So to me, that was just, it was very eye-opening, and I, I wasn't sure if that was fact or fiction, but the more I talked about it this week, it seems like there is something real about math and science and the other STEM types. I, I, I shared with you, Joe, my, my sister was a very successful mechanical engineer who went into the, the field of sales within mechanical engineering, but she was telling me that when she was in undergraduate and getting her master's degree, there was about 10% women in the engineering field and she's pretty convinced she could because she's been going back and lecturing them on women and leadership and all of that that there's still only about 10 percent 30 years later hard but, to imagine isn't it yeah yeah and there was something uh, on npr just today about a woman who is in the oil profession and at a convention some guy comes up and says you know why are you in such a dirty profession i mean you're a woman look we we, we, have, we have a caller uh, you we may do? recognize you may recognize this name. Uh, Becca is on the air. Becca, where are you calling from? Hello. Hello, Becca. Hi, I'm. Hello, I'm calling from Berkeley College of Music in Boston. Wow. So t tell us, we've been talking about women in science. We've been talking about early education. You have a story for us. I do. So, um, I was very into science, just like a lot of my family when I was younger. And my middle school uh, chemistry teacher made me think that I was incapable of doing science at all, which is, and she was a woman, which made it a little uh. more interesting. Um, but then she went on maternity leave and we had a male teacher come in and all of a sudden I felt like he was helping me get to where I wanted to be and I was acing all the tests. So. Are there some comments that huh. people might have on that? Because it's definitely whole other an interesting show. experience. That's an entire show right there, <laughs> really? Dr. Joe. Yeah. Um, Dr. Shirley, what, what do you think about this? That is a great experience and a great anecdote, too, because it, the, the messages that were given as women, um, as girls growing up, don't only come from men. And that's important to recognize right. that people who give us these, these direct or subliminal messages come from everywhere. And to have mm. a, a male uh, teacher come forward and help you through that block is tremendous and, and more power to him. I had a teacher when I was growing up who told me absolutely that girls couldn't do physics. Hmm. And uh, seriously, <laughs> I was the top at math in my school, you know? Wow. 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 Sophie, you're still on the air. You have a, a comment on this? Yeah, I... I um, I wish I could say I was surprised, you know, and unfortunately I'm not because it is so ingrained in our in our language and in society. We, we said that this this messaging starts from birth. It starts before birth when you have a baby shower that's either blue or pink themed, right? Mm -hmm. We we have these gender stereotypes from such an early age that it's really it can be really hard to be aware of what you're saying. So some of these women who I've worked with as well, and it sounds like, Becca, what you experienced, may or may not be aware that that's a message being sent, right? I've had parents in my classes, I teach um, students from all over Chicago, and I've had parents uh, well-meaning, right, or teachers well-meaning, um, 
but I've had parents come in and, and they'll have, say, a daughter and a son, and they'll come into the lab and they'll say, um, oh, well, they're both really smart, but my son's really the scientist. Hmm. Happens and all the time. Hmm. It happens all the time. Um, and that's why allies are so important. And when I say an ally, I mean someone like this male teacher you had, Becca, who can recognize that there's a problem outside of himself, right? So he doesn't experience that kind of um, issue as a man in science, but he can recognize that it's a problem, recognize that women need support, that young women deserve those opportunities as well. And so he was cognizant enough of it uh, to help you, right, and to, to encourage yeah. you that, yes, you are able to do this, you are good at this, and it makes a difference, right? It makes a huge yeah. difference. Especially being um, in not scientists, but in the music world too. I I play the tuba, and everyone pictures tuba players as you know these huge men, and it's it's the same thing where you know I walk into a rehearsal and someone says, "You can't play that instrument. How do you even get a sound out of it?" Mm. Right. <laughs> right, right, right. And then and then what happens? And then they, and then they realize that they're wrong. <laughs> they realize that they're go. wrong. That's right. You know, it's it's a, such an important topic. And um, it, again, from a psychiatry point of view, there's something called resilience. Resilience is when a kid who has suffered tremendous trauma or even little trauma, they they <laughs> somehow overcome it. They overcome it, and they are resilient, and they continue. And you know what we have in the research? What we know. Every single one of those kids, the common thread is that there was at least one person in their life who believed in them, at least one person who saw them as valuable. Think about this, folks. That's all you need to do is remind someone of their value. We actually have another caller. We've got Mary who is calling in. Mary, you're Let's on the air. see what Mary has to say about this. And it's Mary Claire. Mary Claire. Where are you calling from, Mary Claire? Uh, Washington, D.C. Wow, that's so great. So what's on your mind? So I kind of wanted to chime in a little bit on this conversation that we're having about women in STEM. So I just finished my Ph.D. at Cornell in biomedical engineering. And before that, I was at Worcester Polytechnic Institute and got my bachelor's in biomedical engineering. And I you know, wanted to shift the focus a little bit to, to what's working. So cool. my class coming into Worcester Polytechnic was 25% female, hmm. um, which you can imagine you can, there, that's a big change coming from high school where it's pretty 50-50. But hmm. WPI made big news this last year because their incoming class was actually 44% women. Wow. That's, that's great. A big jump. Big jump, big jump in, in just yeah. a few years. First of all, congratulations uh, on your PhD. Well done. Congratulations. 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 So, so Mary Claire, <laughs> and you're, you're calling from from Washington? Yep. I, I told you we were international, Dr. Joe. Mark. <laughs> so, so what about now? What, what was What's it like now for you? So I'm now working at doing science policy at the Food and Drug Administration in the Center for Devices and Radiological Health. And are you finding any of this this politics that we've been talking about, this this gender difference? You know, I, I'm i kind of fortunate in that BME, uh, so biomedical engineering, is actually pretty well represented. So as Dr. Shirley said, at least in the younger ages, it's pretty 50-50. You do see it, however, in the, you know, in the 
upper positions, especially in academia, you can see the professors, you're looking at, you know, maybe one or two in each department. And, you know, you guys kind of touched a little bit on this whole, uh, you know, unconscious bias that happens. And there are actually a lot of studies that they've done looking at different study sections for grants and how women get scored against men. And a lot of that change that you see in the, the upper strata of academia, it's because it's a lot harder for women to get grants. Really? And, you know, they've run these, you know, blinded studies where they'll score them, so you can't tell whether it's a man or a woman. And you'll see the scores of the grants that were written by women go up. Wow. That is very interesting. The same, there are also similar studies for management positions, for leadership positions in a a variety of different um, industries and fields. And Mm -hmm. there's one study that recently came out uh, that was about academia in particular that women had to do roughly 2.5 times the amount of work that their male counterparts did to be considered equally competent. Yep. Wow. I'll certainly agree with that. Wow. Mm-hmm. So, Dr. Shirley, what, what, what experience have you had in this, in, in your field? Well, so for, for myself, um, coming into an academic position, I made a conscious choice to not go tenure track, which is the gold standard, right? So I became what was called a research track professor. Um, And I chose that because I knew that I had a young family and I wanted to be able to say no when I needed to say no Hmm. to the university. And that was going to prohibit me ever achieving tenure. And so I chose Hmm. a secondary track so that I would never have to have that. But it made me much more dependent on grant funds because there was no sure line of salary coming from the school. So I was dependent entirely on getting grants um, and didn't have the financial support from the university. So I made that conscious choice because I could see down the line that it wasn't going to make any difference. I wasn't going to make it anyway. Wow. And I look forward to, I know that we will talk about the the silver lining and the bright sides of all of this and where it's headed and the positive things we're going to do, but first. Um, <laughs> but the first. Other question that, but first. The other question that I have about that, for, especially for Dr. Shirley, is would that uh, conflict have been there if you were a male, if you were a father rather than potential mother? Not to the extent that I saw it, certainly. Right. Not yeah. The, yeah. I, yeah. And, and so now <laughs> we do we... have to get to more positive things because I think these trends are changing, <laughs> but they're changing too slowly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we don't really have time to wait anymore, do we? No, we don't. <laughs> Mary Claire, are you still on the air there? Yes, I'm still here. So do you want to chime in on this? I mean, well, go ahead. I mean, I can say that right now the current landscape, uh, you know, there's a lot of things going on. Part of why I chose not to stay in academia is in part because the women, you know, that I saw, they were wonderful role models and amazing scientists. But I, you know, as somebody that wants to have a family, I, you know, I they work so, so hard. And, you know, it was just not something that I wanted in my future was, you know, to be up, you know, I don't, pulling all-nighters when I'm 40, writing grants. Um, and, you know, I think that's in part augmented by the lack of funding. So now it's, it's not only hard 
to get funding as a woman, but it's just generally hard to get funding. Mm. So there's not a lot of opportunity for scientists that want to stay in academia in the first place um, in the current political landscape. Yeah, the whole funding landscape has changed dramatically in the last five to ten years. It's become much, much more toxic, much more difficult for anybody Mm -hmm. to get funding. Yeah. Any thoughts of why that would be? I mean, we need the research. We need to move forward. We certainly do need the research, and it's something that our government needs to foster at all costs. Because without the research, we cannot move forward as a country, as as individuals or as teams. We simply can't. We get left behind from the rest of the world. And until mm-hmm. people in power recognize that, the funding situation is going to stay bad and people will be discouraged from pursuing STEM careers, not only female, but males as well. Mary Claire, thanks so much for calling in all the way from Washington. Really appreciate You're it. Welcome. Thank you, Mary. Thank you. Thank you, Mary Claire. Thanks, Mary Claire. So, congratulations again. Right. Congratulations again. So Thank you. I, I, I wanted to somehow tie this in also with epigenetics because we were talking at the end of uh, the last uh, segment about value. And I was, again, talking off air with Dr. Shirley. Is there something, I mean, is there an epigenetic phenomenon, the way just people interact with each other? I suspect that there is. Um, One of the studies that has been pretty prominent in the field of epigenetics is um, a study that had to do with identical twins who were raised separately from each other. And if you gather these individuals together as adults and compare their environment and their upbringing and then ask questions about what their epigenetics are like, you'll find that they're completely different one from the other at the epigenetic level. They're identical genetically, but the epigenetics are different. And what I said earlier was that epigenetics is what controls which genes are allowed to be turned on to make a given cell within your body have its particular job and function performed correctly. So it's, it's, it's kind of a dosage mechanism to say these genes should be on, these genes should be off in any given cell. So what's happening here is that I think experience and environment is playing into Um, fine-tuning expression of genes within our bodies and making us different one from the other, even though our genetics in two identical twins might be exactly the same. So is it fair to say, and I've said this before, I hope it's been fair, that a gene is really only as good as its environment? A gene is only as good as its epigenetics, Ah. which I think is is fine-tuned by the environment. Yeah. I'm, I'm telling you, folks, it is remarkable to me because one of the things that we that we talk about on the Dr. Joe show is, is the I am approach, which is the idea that everyone is at an I am, a current maximum potential, doing the best they can, but with the potential to change in the very next second, and that we are responding always to the world inside and outside us. But rather than keep looking at ourselves as sick and broken, let's try to understand why we do what we do. And that's why epigenetics for me has been such a powerful sort of force in, in helping me understand who we are uh, as human beings. And yet here we are faced with this very real event that women continue 
to be put into a position or, or made to believe or people trying to make them believe that they're not as good. Sophie, has, has that has that happened to you at all in, in the different career paths that you've taken? The the message that I'm not as good or less than? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm a woman. Um, and it happens, you know. It, from a young age, I... I remember just different messaging, again, conscious or unconscious, about, like, that you walk down the, the toy aisle in the store and all of the boys-looking toys that are blue and yellow and um, cool-looking are engineering-based and building blocks and trucks, and then all of the girl aisle, there's literally a girls in a boys aisle, yeah. um, and the girls aisle is all pink and it's dolls. Yeah. And there's um, there was a line in a, a song that I think I found on YouTube um, because there are so many different opinions that you can reach for nowadays with the advent of social media. Um, but a line that really stuck out to me is this idea that says, you gave us dolls, then told us they were dumb. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Right? Yeah. Oh. And that really stuck in my head. But um, being in science and also being in comedy, this is where I say that science is not alone in this issue because the world of comedy, as we're seeing more and more in the news, in performance, in acting, in theater, in film, is a rampant issue. The inequality of it, the prejudices, the stereotypes, the harassment, oh my goodness, it is so discouraging sometimes to be in it because it's, it's just tiring work to, uh, to deal with it constantly right um but that's why we're here and that's why we're having this kind of conversation so that we can move toward a place of awareness because that's the only way that things are going to change awareness is so critical and it's, it has to happen right across the board across all walks of life people have to become aware that this is going on that this is not always obvious it's always there and and um and has to be overcome. So we have to be much more aware of, of how we interact with each other. We have to be much more positive in our interactions with each other, encouraging. As Dr. Joe said earlier, you tell somebody that they are valuable. That's right. And you don't undermine their abilities to do something and be someone by the way you behave to them. That, that'll make a big difference in any person's life, male or female. Absolutely. And it's yeah. so easy to do. It is the easiest thing to remind someone of their value. Unfortunately, human beings are good at both. Again, I, I want to double endorse your show. I do love it. It's <laughs> unbelievable. I think it's great. I hope Nickelodeon finds it and, and really launches this thing wildly because I think the whole, the whole concept is amazing. And I'm sure you've done a ton of research on this because now you were talking about little kids. Why would a little kid be told they can't do something? Right. Yeah, it's a great question, and it's one I ask myself every day. Um, and unfortunately, it is it is a a, a real wrap nest to uh, <laughs> to untangle. Right? Um, there's a, another study that was recently out, and as a scientist, I just love quoting studies. Um, <laughs> that uh, by age six, girls see themselves as less smart than boys. Uh. And this is even with parents who are sending positive messages, who are who think they're doing everything right, you know, who who say, Well, I, I try to 
do everything that I, I think is the right thing to do to to um, tell my daughter that she's smart and she's capable and all these things. And even still, when given a picture of a man and a picture of a woman and asked to identify who the smartest person is, girls pick the boy uh, by age six. By age five, at age five, they, they pick their own gender that they identify with. Uh, by age six, they're all picking males. So this is, this is why I want this show to send a positive and upbeat and funny, goofy, lighthearted uh, message and vehicle, rather, because it's, it's a goofy show. It's upbeat. I play 15 different characters. You know, mm. it's real silly uh, with the strong scientific core to it. Right. Um, and kind of showing by doing that, yeah, girls can be silly. They can be smart. They can be creative, wacky, anything they want to be. That's the key, isn't it, Sophie? They can be anything they want to be, and if we can find ways to teach them that they can be any way they, anything they want to be, then we can change the whole slant, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. Yeah, this, the, my goal in, in my show, in my life, isn't that everybody becomes a scientist, right. but it is right. that everybody feels that they have the agency, the ability to do whatever it is that they really want in their life so to really achieve their dreams and shoot for the stars yeah and, and you know so if I've, I've taught all of you guys love going to work love going home that's a success you know if you can do those two things love going to work and love going home what could be more successful it, it seems to me that it's 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 not just reminding young girls of this and, and that study right that Sophie just quoted is fascinating so so the, the sort of intuitive instinctive the the evolutionary component is that we believe in ourselves mm. until the age of five we're still believing in ourselves and then something happens and what right. is that and something? what is that something is that the media is that the is that society yeah. at large that's what yes we need and to... yes. I mean, yes, is, media, yes, I agree. is media telling these girls? And again, I'm focusing on that because I'm I'm mm -hmm. enthralled with your with your studies. But are they telling them at the age of six that you can't have a successful career into your 30s and 40s because you're going to be home with kids? Is that <laughs> right. I mean, are they telling them at six years old? No, but I think it I somehow think... settles in as the kids as mm -hmm. kids grow up. Um, and pass a certain intellectual threshold that it sinks in and say, they say, okay, I, I, this is what I see now, right? Right. Mm. What and about... If, if there's the phrase that if you can't see it, you can't be it, right? So mm -hmm. rather yeah. than maybe sending it an overt message that says, girls with a megaphone, yeah. you can't do this. Yeah. Um, if, if all we're seeing on TV, on YouTube, on Instagram is is images of people in high power, people who are smart, all looking like the, the same, all looking like men, like white men in particular, um, then that sends a message, right, that those are the people we see. So those are the people we grow to expect to be those things. And then on the flip side of that, they're seeing these ridiculous magazines and Instagrams and mm -hmm. posts of what women are expected to be like, right? So right. maybe a and I've heard this in my informal research over the past week is maybe it's not cool to be a smart girl. 
when you're in mm-hmm. the in the middle school, high school age. Maybe the boys aren't going to be attracted to the uh, the smart girls. The the cool boys want to be with the cool mm-hmm. girls, or or something completely <laughs> adolescent yeah. like that. And certainly, that does go on. Um, to what extent one can actually change that, it's hard to tell. Right. But the the critical thing I think is 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 to always give that positive message that a girl, just as for a guy, can be anything they dream of being, and and the sky's the limit. And that mm-hmm. that has to that has to overcome the negative, um, stereotypical influences that we see in our lives. And I think if you have that coming from role models consistently. Then, then girls will be whatever they want to be. Yeah, yeah. From peers as well, because when Absolutely. we see at age six, you know, that's when we in the U.S. they're starting first grade. They are interacting with other kids, with other families, and we are very social beings. Um, so those messages are coming from really everywhere. And a challenge that I would give a fun challenge to all the listeners out there is just. Put on your your glasses of uh, of equity for a minute, um, and look around and see if you can identify some places where that message is happening that you may not have noticed before. And then, in the terms of the solution thinking, consider what would cha- what would you change? How could you change that or reframe it so that you send a positive message in something that you're doing, in something that you see on in an advertisement. Um, What's something that you noticed that maybe you didn't notice before? That's Which a, is a good tenet of science as well, right? It's a great <laughs> exercise. I just got a text message on the, the Dr. Joe text from a... The hotline? The Dr. Joe text line? The Dr. Joe text line from a very <laughs> smart woman, happens to be my wife. And, and she says that, talking about the, the age thing, that, that girls are suddenly more influenced by peers and societal expectations. And you know what? There is a lot of truth to this because guys are are not as socially adept as girls. They really aren't. Well, Certainly not at six. Not at six. I mean, now I would like to think I'm doing a little bit better. Um, but But maybe there is something to this. Maybe there is this awareness that, that young girls have because of the social component or or maybe Sophie maybe you would object to that and saying that's that's an, just another sexist view I do think that it is a little bit or a lot of bit about a societal construct and by that I mean the messaging that we get in the media there is a, a conscious or otherwise um, image of what it means to be a girl and what it means to be a boy and I think we want to Make sure we're being sensitive to the guys out there. Right. Um, that there's so, there's something that uh, you know. It's everybody can be everything that they want to be. What I want to do is say this as we as we're ending. We have positive role models now in, for women in science. We have Dr. Shirley Taylor, and we have Science with Sophie, Sophie Strand, who is going to be that positive role model, the real female Bill Nye. She's going to do it. Everybody, thanks so much for this show. This has been fantastic. Mark, see you next week. Thank you, Dr. Joe. The Dr. Joe Show. Yes,